We believe in functional mental wellness, a holistic approach to mental health. We know that there's hope for those of us who have experienced trauma, even profound trauma, and that's why we created the Universe Is Your Therapist podcast. We believe whether you call it God, the universe, source, unity, or love, that there is something much greater than us that conspires for our good. We envision a world of healing and connection, and we teach you simple but powerful practices that integrate your mind, body, and spirit so that you can come home to your highest self and your truest identity. You are not broken, you are loved, and you can heal. My name is Amy Hoyt, and together with my sister, Lena, we will take you on a journey of healing and self-discovery. I'm back to another episode of the podcast. I'm so excited to have our guest, Julie Hall, with us today. And Julie, I want to make sure I get all of the information correct, but Julie is a clinician who has a deep passion for supporting families and couples and individuals towards healing and wholeness. And she focuses on collaboration Mm -hmm. and compassion and building safe and empowering experiences in her therapeutic practice. Julie has a bachelor's from NYU, a master's in uh, business from Rutgers, and a master's, um, an MFT, a master's in uh, marriage and family therapy from Seattle Pacific. And before she became a therapist, she was in um, tech for 10 years. So that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. And um, she now practices and is licensed in the state of Connecticut. So mm-hmm. welcome so much, Julie. I'm so happy um, to have you here. Thank you so much, Amy. Thank you so much. Thank you for that intro. Appreciate Absolutely. that. So tell us what led you to your professional work, especially you know, coming from tech. That's so interesting. Yeah, yeah. Happy to. So um you know, so I really didn't have a thought in my mind to move into the therapeutic practice professionally. Um, Yep, I was in tech, graduated, and moved in all different capacities in the tech space um, for many years. And, um, and then my husband and I, we um, really had a difficult time um, trying to get pregnant, right? We um, were navigating infertility and it was nothing that I had ever really personally, um, you know, had heard of as far as my friends navigating it or family members. And so these were really unchartered waters for us. And I remember um, working with um, work, working with a doctor, you know, at the time, and he kind of sort of like slipped me a business card of, uh, a therapist who worked in their practice and, um, you know, and, and had said, you know, this could be helpful for you to just kind of talk about what this is like. And to be honest with you, Amy, I was initially, um, a little bit offended because already I was working with, you know, all these sort of challenges you know, in my body. And the message I was hearing is, okay, you're telling me that like something is wrong with me, you know? And, and, and that was because, you know, growing up therapy was not something that, you know, 
I had heard of people really doing unless you were really, really struggling, you know, or really, you know, in a, a problematic place. And, you know, also culturally growing up Indian American in my culture, that wasn't necessarily something that people did. In fact, it was um, really kind of regarded as something maybe shameful. So, you know, I had all of those kind of barriers. And so when he slipped me this card, um, that all of that was kind of even just sort of subconsciously kind of moving through me. But, you know, uh, I will say by God's grace, I did go um, and see this person and it was, it was like the floodgates opened. <laughs> it was just this incredible experience for me, you know, and I really shared all, all these things that I didn't even know I was holding on to. Um, that, you know, had some kind of association with what we were dealing with at the time. But, you know, I think it really sort of unlocked so much for me as far as, um, you know, what I was holding on to emotionally and mentally. And I walked out of there and it was just this beautiful kind of relief. And I thought, what, what is this thing? What, what is this? <laughs> this magic. <laughs> this magic, right. And, um, and it really, you know, I think kind of catapulted me into this sort of um, curiosity as far as, um, you know, can this really be something that I can actually perhaps support people in? And so, you know, the, our infertility journey is what really, you know, um, moved me into shifting my career and, um, and so I did go back to school um, and at the time we were still navigating infertility. And I, I think it was maybe the day before I started classes, we found out we were pregnant. <laughs> yeah. Which is so really quite amazing. amazing. And so, um, yeah. And so I went through, uh, you know, schooling with, you know, a newborn. And then at the time that I graduated, she was two and I carried her up there getting my degree. And it was just, it was beautiful. And, you know, I really, to be honest with you, and I've never looked back. Oh, that is wonderful. And I yeah. love, it does not, it's not lost on me how your greatest challenge to, to that point led you to something completely unexpected and it sounds like really beautiful. Yes. I think that's, that's so accurate, Amy. And I think, in, you know, in many ways, like I would be the person that, you know, at parties having deep conversations with people. So certainly, you know, the therapeutic, you know, the practices were somewhere within me, you know, but yes, absolutely. I think, you know, that challenge really, you know, brought me into, you know, what might it be like for me to hold space for people who feel like they are alone or they don't necessarily have the kind of resourcing. Yeah, no, absolutely. And in your client base now, do you work a lot with couples who are experiencing infertility or do you have a um, type of client that you see a lot of? Yeah, no, I th it's a great question. I think in the years, you know, that I have been practicing, um, that has shifted. I think I, I, I probably started with more clients who are navigating infertility couples and women. Um, and then that really has, has kind of grown and developed as my 
passions and understanding of the therapeutic space has grown. Um, and so I see individuals, primarily, um, I would say primarily women. Um, I also see couples. I do a lot of um, couple work and um, I have a real sort of trauma focus in, in the work that I do. And in, in some ways we could say everything is trauma. We all have, I mean, you know, Absolutely. And, and so, um, you know, and so as far as kind of a particular specialization, you know, I have done a lot with um, uh, sexual abuse and trauma, um, divorce support. Um, you know, again, the marital space is, is one that is a, a specialization of mine. Um, and then also just, you know, like I said, women, women navigating all kinds of transitions. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering with the trauma focus uh, and your focus on couples, because I know in my own marriage, we've had counseling, you know, off and on, we've been married 21 years and it seems about every five years we go in for mm -hmm. a that sounds wise. Skill set. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, but I am, I feel like sometimes um, the trauma is what is kind of bringing up some of our maladaptive relationship patterns. Sure. In our marriage. And so how, what are some tools that you found that help people when they come in, even if it's for couples counseling? Um, how do you how do you help them if, if it stems from trauma? Yeah, no, I think that's such a great, um, great question, Amy. And in my work with clients, I um, almost always start um, a session or two with um, looking at our family of origin, right? And so if I, you know, marriage and, with marriage and family therapy, um, for the most part, we look at all the issues that we face through the lens of relationship, what's happening in the space between us and others that's impacting what we would say is our sense of safety, right? And so if we were to kind of boil down the relational experience into its sort of most primal, it wouldn't be love or hate or like or dislike, it would really be safety and danger, our experience of safety and danger. And so we tap into our most formative relational experience, right? And that is generally with our family of origin. And so I spend time with clients really looking at their family of origin. We look at three areas of focus. We look at patterns, like you said, and those are things like how was love given? How was love received? What did conflict look like? What did, what were some of the kind of communication styles, right? And we look at that generally, um, with a, a lens of three generations. So grandparents, parents, and then your, where you are. And then we look at um, narratives and narratives really are, you know, the stories that we tell ourselves about the world around us or the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. Right. And generally those stories don't come out of nowhere, right. They're often given to us and we, as children, particularly we absorb them. Right. And so narratives are things like you know, what do we consider to be good? What do we consider to be bad? Who do we consider to be good? Who do we consider to be bad, right? What does success look like? What does failure look like? So much of this is 
you know, within our sort of subconscious, right? And has not really been brought to consciousness. And then as you're sharing, we also look at trauma. And there's like, this is my ultimate definition of trauma. And it's by an author, a therapist. His name is um, Resma Menicum. And his definition of trauma is anything that happened to us that was either too much too fast too much too long or not enough too long where we did not receive adequate support or resourcing, right? So anything that happened to us that was too much too fast, too much too long or not enough too long, right? I love that. I mean, and for me, when I came across his definition, it felt so poignant and all encompassing, right? And so we look at that, particularly around family of origin, because that also informs our narratives and informs our patterns. And so I do this work with clients because we really want to tap into um, the what happened to me story, the what happened to me story, right? Because often when we haven't been doing this work, we, we can run into these kind of mental or emotional blocks or maladaptive behaviors and we can internalize them, right? Or we can become self-critical, right? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? And I, I just love this kind of new movement that is, you know, what I find to be much more self, you know, compassionate, right? Which is, it's not what's wrong with me. It's what happened to me that has really shaped these kinds of maladaptive behaviors. Right. And that's not to say it gives us a pass or we just kind of dwell on, you know, but, you know, and there's a ton of research actually out there, I think particularly coming from uh, UC Berkeley that tells us that this practice of self-compassion, this understanding of what happened to me, um, it actually accelerates our, our capacity for growth. It opens up the centers of our brain that tell us we are capable of growth and change. Absolutely. I think that comes out of Kristen Neff's work. Yeah. Okay. It's so, so helpful. And the research shows it's so healing. Well, that's it's so it simple, but it's so powerful. Mm-hmm. And I find that particularly, you know, so many of us and so like just, people who are high functioning and they, they can, they can actually find that what drives them, you know, in the short term is that kind of self-criticism, self-judgment. It's what moves them. And yet what we really believe is that that's not sustainably effective, right? It's not sustainably effective for us in driving change. Right. Um, at the, the second reason that we do that, so it's one is to kind of build up this kind of this, this capacity for self-compassion. It's also, I think, as we start to get a sense of our family of origin and our background, it helps us, you know, bring from subconscious to consciousness, right, what we have really been given and helps us sort of recognize that we can make choices, I can decide, you know, that value that has been held in my family for so long, it doesn't really serve me well, right? And it's not something that I want to bring into my adult relationships, you know, or, you know, this particular pattern, I actually love it. And it's something that I do want to bring with me, right? And so we start to really, 
you know, build this opportunity to make conscious choices in our adult relationships. And, you know, I always say there's kind of this like inverse direct relationship between anxiety and empowerment, meaning that the more empowered I feel as in the story that I tell myself that I can make choices, the less anxious I am, but the less empowered I feel often the more anxious I am. So there's this really kind of incredible correlation between empowerment and anxiety. And so what we really try to do in this family of origin work with regard to trauma, as you said, right, is help people recognize that those maladaptive behaviors come from somewhere, right? And as we build awareness, we can decide what we want to carry forward with us, right? And what's not serving us well anymore. And that sense of empowerment building really does, I think, help us. I think particularly, you know, in trauma, so much of our trauma experience is that asking that question, am I safe? Am I safe? Yeah. And the more that I can respond to that question with, yes, I can make choices in any moment, I can make a choice, right? It speaks to that kind of safety building. Absolutely. That's beautiful. And that drive for connection and the drive for safety, they, at least what we've seen in our work is when trauma happens, they start to ping against each other because we want that connection and we're feeling so unsafe and untrusting. Um, And so that's, that's a real sticking point. And as you say, I love that you brought up conscious choice because when we start becoming aware of those patterns and those narratives that you talk about, Mm -hmm. then we open up agency and we're not just simply subconsciously or autonomically adopting these patterns. Yes. And I'm so passionate about agency. I actually wrote my dissertation on agency. Wow. (laughs) That gives me chills, Amy. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's just... I think you've identified something really important in trauma and that it's that lack of choice mm-hmm. um, that drives the anxiousness and, and you can get that outside of trauma as well. But anytime we're empowered with our own, I believe inherent agency, mm-hmm. we, I mean, that is such a, I think it's a spiritual gift. You know, um, Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's part of the work that, again, I think it drives us. So I think we do have that connection drive and that safety drive, and that's pretty well, well um, rehearsed in the literature on trauma. Mm-hmm. But as we're speaking, I'm thinking we also have that drive for agency. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's one reason, um, you know, for instance, with parenting, we moved from timeouts to, you know, helping our kids reset. And mm-hmm. I think of the construct of separation and not having choice and kind of the powerlessness that children feel. Mm-hmm. And when they're in charge of resetting themselves and we give them some forms of agency, it, it feels it's, like yes. that's helpful for our kids. <laughs> I love it. The safety, the connection and agency. Yeah. Yeah. I'm tracking with you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate what you're saying because it's helping me understand um, my own work 
better, which is why I love these conversations. Yes. It's like an inherent longing for us, safety, Mm -hmm. connection, agency. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So one of the things we find, and I say we, and my sister, Lena and I, um, we find that there is a, a resistance to um, focusing on one's trauma and partially because the, um, the idea that we hear from people is I don't want to focus on my past. I don't want to be stuck mm-hmm. in my past. Right. And I'm wondering, how do you navigate that with clients, encouraging them um, to gaze at the past in order to move forward? What does that look like for you? And how do you explain that to clients? Because that's something we run up against quite a bit. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I run up against it too and I get it right. It makes sense. I get it. You know? And so I, I absolutely have empathy, compassion, and understanding for that perspective. There's a quote that I love, Amy, I hope I get this right. It's by another therapist. Her name is um, Monique Coven and she has a podcast called, I think it's the healing trauma podcast. Um, But she, she says something like this. She says, So much of the lived experience is the younger self and the adult self living in the same body, experiencing life as it is and as it was. That's beautiful. Right. And accurate. (laughs) Right. Right. And I I think what I love about that quote, I think it really just kind of taps into what we don't necessarily realize for good reason, what we don't recognize we are kind of holding, you know, in our day to day, right, that we hold, um, you know, these often kind of these sort of fractured places in our younger selves Mm -hmm. that can show up, right. And so I, I, I believe, you know, in that place of we certainly don't want to dwell in the past, right. I think this quote, helps us recognize that we navigate both past and present, right, in our day to day, right, you know, and in, you know, in, in my work, I'm trained in emotion focused therapy, right, emotion focused, focused therapy, and I really kind of utilize that modality, you know, um, from that sort of lens of trauma, Right. And, and so we often start, you know, this is what I really share with clients is it's start, it's sort of this hierarchy um, kind of framework. And it starts with our experience of trigger and trigger is right. Anything that happens outside of us, right. That sends a message from our brain to write that nervous system that tells us we are experiencing some kind of threat. We're under some kind of threat. Right. And Um, And the threat is generally a threat to one or more of three things, a threat to our feelings of safety, a threat to our feelings of love, and or a threat to our feelings of belonging, right? And anytime we experience, whether it be real or perceived feelings of threat, our bodies go into our threat response behaviors, right? And, and, um, but, you know, those, tr- the, the triggering experience, right, has, that has been developed for us um, often through our history, 
right? Through our own lived experience. Sometimes I describe it as if this trigger happens and it's if these, this kind of younger place in me is showing up in that moment and tugging on my shirt in that moment and popping up and saying, are we okay? Is this like that time when we really felt safe? Is this like, right? And so often what we do in that moment is we're like, ah, go away to that younger self that's showing up in that moment. You're disrupting me, right? And the message that younger self, you know, receives is, okay, yeah, we are unsafe. Right. Okay, I guess that <laughs> means we are unsafe, yeah. right, right. And so what we really try to practice in the therapeutic experience is, is seeing her, seeing that younger, younger fractured place in my lived experience, seeing her and drawing her clothes, drawing her clothes, right? Or drawing him clothes or drawing them clothes. I love right? that image. Yeah. And saying, okay, I see you. That's not easy. It's not easy. And so that's where I think just that trauma work can be helpful for us in showing up in our present as our authentic self rather than our armored self. Yes. Right. Armored self being, okay, that's my fight or my, like, I, I sometimes say it's like, I put the cover over like the blanket over my head, you know, it's like uh, to kind of cover, right. It's that sort of, you know, fight or flight, right. Which is that sort of maladaptive behavior, right. Or a threat response behavior, but you know, threat response behaviors can look like all kinds of things, right. It can look like fight, flight and fight can be the rage, it can also be sarcasm, it could also be defensiveness, it could be, you know, withdrawing to punish. Flight can look like, you know, shutting down, even in some ways, kind of appeasing the people pleasing kind of place in us. It, you know, threat response behavior can also look like catastrophizing, right? Or ruminating, um, can look like any kind of numbing out behavior. And so, you know, in my work with clients, I'm really careful not to shame any of those behaviors because they've been developed by our bodies to try to preserve the environment or preserve self, right? It's just what we know is that those moves, those behaviors are not sustainably effective. In fact, they keep us disconnected from self and disconnected from the people that matter to us, right? Absolutely. So we really try to help, you know, I think in my work, I, I try to help clients tap into what's really underneath that, right? What's underneath that threat response behavior? What is really the threat? And by threat, you know, the, the language that I often use is pain story, pain story. So if you could imagine this with me, Amy, it's like, if I experience trigger, whatever it is, and it's, this happened so quickly, but it's as if somebody put a t-shirt on me in that moment. And the t-shirt says something like, I am blank. And the I am statement sounds something like this. It sounds like I am rejected or I am unlovable or I am alone or I am a failure or I am not good enough. Right. And so these I am statements, these pain stories, they're not pretty stories. They're not pretty stories, right? Which is why our threat response behavior, the nervous system, right? That 
that the body response is, yeah, let's not go there. Let's not talk about that. Let's not, let's not, that's too tender. That's too vulnerable, right? And so we do our threat response move, right? We do our threat response move, right? Which is not who we are authentically, right? It is not our, our authentic self, right? And so what we try to do in the therapeutic space is as safely and as gently as we can co-create the space is to really, you know, give language to the pain story, look at it, practice compassion, tenderness toward understanding toward it. So that when that younger self shows up, I know what to do. I can actually bring her close because I know how to do that, you know? That's wonderful. One thing I'm wondering, Julie, is sometimes um, my triggers just catch me off guard. Right. And so in your work with clients, how, how can we become more aware of those autonomic responses that just are even underneath our conscious awareness? Yeah, that's a great question, Amy. Um, I think, I think to your point, right around autonomic, um, you know, responses, there's the, it's the somatic, there's, there, there's a body experience to that what happens for us when we experience trigger, right? You know, for me, it's like, it's all in the chest area, right? It's like, uh, you know, for, for, you know, a lot of people, it's in the gut, you know, sometimes it's, you know, in like our hands, right? And so there is that, you know, again, um, I think, I think there's that sensation component. And I think for us to kind of develop an awareness, we have to practice awareness, right? It's like a skill building. We have to practice tapping into our bodies, right? And that's all from a reactive place, but I think also from a proactive place, right? I think what, what does it mean for us to just kind of connect with breath, connect with our bodies, you know, in some kind of ritualistic practice, right? Whether it be prayer or, or, you know, meditation or breath or, you know, um, body movement that helps us build connection to our bodies so that we have, you know, it's, you know, more capacity to tap into what's happening for us in that autonomic place. Um, Because it happens so quickly. And often we don't catch it, right? Often we don't catch it and and we show up with that threat response behavior. But I think particularly in the relational experience, that's where I really encourage for clients. And this is for me in my own practice is repair, 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 right? What does it mean for me to repair with people, right? Acknowledge, ooh, that's, I didn't show up the way that I wanted to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm aware that, at least once a week, I'm in one of my kids' rooms at night apologizing for something Mm -hmm. that, you know, I haven't handled the way I wanted to. Um, And mainly it's those autonomic responses where I just feel a certain emotion and it comes on so fast. And what's usually for me, what's behind it is fear, especially with parenting. Um, Hello. Hello. You know, so, um, I think 
we I love that you're emphasizing repair because we're not going to do this no. life and these relationships perfectly. It's not possible. No. And I'm not even sure if that's optimal because we learn from the repairing and we yes. learn from trying again and showing up again. Um, and so I love that you talk about repair. That's so, um, that really speaks to me. I yes, I see. Yes. You know, there's, um, another author that I love. Her name is L.R. Nost. Are you familiar with her? Amy? No, I'm not. Oh, okay. She, um, has written a book. One of her great books is, um, the gentle parent, I think. And um, what, she, what she talks about is, you know, our children don't want perfection, right? They want connection, mm-hmm. right? And so even just that moment of repair, it's connecting to our children. It's like, it's a human to human kind of experience, just acknowledging of humanity, right? And I feel like we just need so much more of that. Yeah. I think collectively, if we could move into repair as a society, oh, it would be so right. And, you know, I know that you do do a lot of work with racial trauma and racial crisis. And I would absolutely love for you to talk about that to our listeners, because I feel like um, we are in desperate need globally of a model of how to repair collectively. Yes. Um, and this is really tender. I think it's tender for so many people. And I so appreciate you making room for this um, conversation, you know, in our time. Um, and if I could, Amy, I'll start a little bit with my own stories. Is that all right? Oh, I would love that. Sure. So, you know, I, uh, I was born and raised in New Jersey, you know, um, and I, my, my parents are, um, you know, they're immigrants from India and, um, we grew up in a predominantly white suburb and, you know, for the most part, I didn't really feel like we had experienced, you know, a significant amount of racism. Maybe there were some sort of personal kinds of things that, you know, had happened, but, um, it was not really ever talked about in my home, um, And, um, you know, and so it just, my, my racial identity was not part of my consciousness, Mm -hmm. um, you know, growing up really. Um, and, and it was so interesting Amy, because my, my mom still lives in the house that I grew up in, um, you know, since I was five years old is that, you know, that that's, um, and so she asked me just a few years ago, she asked me to kind of help her clean out the basement. And so, um, so it was kind of just cleaning stuff out, you know, old yearbooks and, you know, pictures and things. And I came across, um, a stack of stories that I had written when I was 11 or 12. And, um, and, and it was like some kind of like mystery story and it was me and two of my friends and, um, you know, we were solving mysteries and, um, and the first sort of paragraph of, the first story, um, it was describing physical characteristics and physical characteristics. I was, um, I had hazel eyes and I had blonde hair or light brown hair, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, I was so fascinated when I read that. 
Because somehow I had internalized that me and my brown skin and my brown eyes and black hair, I could not be the hero of my own story. Mm. I know, I know it was a it was a real moment of tenderness and compassion that I had for my younger self, right? And what I had carried. just, you know, so deeply within that had shown up in this way. And so it was, you know, around that time that I started also, you know, um, just diving more deeply into um, the Black American experience. Um, I had just recently read a book called I'm Still Here by Austin Channing Brown, um, who's like a speaker and activist. She's incredible. And, um, and then I heard her speak in person and it really kind of helped me dive deeper um, or sort of catapulted me into just a deeper dive into the black American experience and certainly um, what racism, you know, for the, in the black American experience looked like on sort of a personal level, but also systemically. Right. You know, and and things that I never learned about in school, things like um, the GI Bill that was really only offered to white American veterans. Right. And that helped them, you know, uh, go to higher levels of education. You know, a lot of my colleagues who are um, older than me, their parents, they went to law school and they went off of the GI Bill that was not available to black Americans. Right. And also things like. um, redlining, right, that happened. And that was also kind of, in some ways, I believe, like government sanctioned, right, that where Black Americans could not, Americans could not um, purchase homes in neighborhoods. And so it just, to, to, to be honest with you, Amy, it gutted me, it really gutted me. Yeah. And so there are just different perspectives, I think, as far as kind of how to navigate racial dynamics. I think for me, if I just come back to the therapeutic space, I really try to hold space for people with a mindfulness of what it might, what they might be carrying um, just as a product of some of their um, of, of their identity, gender, um, socioeconomics, race. And I, um, I, as a, in the therapeutic space, I really just tried to acknowledge that rather than ignore it, which maybe I would have done earlier in my therapeutic career, right. Which is like this idea of kind of being colorblind. Right. And, and yet, so, so the journey that I've been on actually sort of helps me hold a different kind of space for what it might mean to live in a marginalized, generationally marginalized kind of embodiment, how that maybe has impacted patterns, narratives, what kind of trauma that does bring up, how that impacts my sense of trigger, right? You know, um, and, and just really hold that curiosity and compassion in my space with a client, um, you know, in that, in that sort of framework, I, I, I'll share, you know, I had a, um, uh, 
my first session with with um, a, with a client, I remember was the day of the insurrection, um, January six, and um, and she was um, a, a black woman, and she was. I remember holding space with her, and she was angry. She was angry, um, and it was not something. She was also angry in some ways. I could feel like just. I could feel also like an anger almost kind of coming toward me. Um, and, I, and, and, and I, I think in some ways, maybe back when I was, you know, earlier in my career, I wouldn't necessarily, I would have been um, pretty dysregulated by what was showing up. And through, I think, just this kind of education and um, sort of deep dive that I had been doing, um, you know, from a historical perspective, but then also like my own biases, my own internalized, you know, worldview perspectives, because I had been doing that work, I think I had just more capacity to hold the space for her. Mm-hmm. And she and I actually over time developed an incredible joining relationship, right? And one where I think we really did co-create a sense of safety. Wow, that's um, great. Yeah, yeah. That's really beautiful. And that's the goal with therapy is to that create is. that sense of safety. That's right. Yes. And for listeners who haven't ever gone to therapy, I'm such a fan. <laughs> I am such a fan. It has completely, yes. um, I would, I don't think it's too dramatic to say it. It has saved my life. Hello, hello. Yeah, right. Hello. Mm-hmm. And um, I just, I love your transparency and your vulnerability sharing your story of Thank that you. internalized ideal. Mm-hmm. One thing, you know, I don't know if you've done any reading on this area, but when we, um, when we were working in Rwanda, we were looking at... Um, obviously, you know, violence during national conflict with genocide. And um, we were also looking at apartheid in South Africa. And one thing, um, one of the very first conferences we put together at the University of Rwanda with our research team, we had presenters who were talking about the generational genetic changes that happen with trauma like the epigenetics exactly yes Uh and so when i hear um and see the very real imprint of trauma on someone yes it could be in their lifetime or it could be passed down generationally and up to seven to eight generations that that dna changes hello and i just think that is Real. If there is ever a need for repair for our future, talk about being future focused. Mm-hmm. We have got to work to repair not just the past, but the present so that the next generations are able to, as much as possible, connect and love mm-hmm. instead mm-hmm. of having so much contention and divisiveness because that is not going to bring us any to any place. I think that any society desires to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, I couldn't agree more. And I think generational, I, I mean, when people talk about generational trauma, I am here for it because it is just, I think, really, really important for us to um, have language around what generational trauma is, right? And I think, you know, when you grow up in these kinds of environments where you have experienced marginalization or you have experienced oppression and you have felt, you know, that these, these opportunities for empowerment have not been, you know, readily available to you in the way that they have been, you know, for other people, right? And so that, I mean, talk about that kind of from like a systemic place coupled with what, you know, what can be internalized for us as far as the story that we tell ourselves about ourselves. Am I good enough? Am I worthy? Yeah. Right. And, um, and, and so we, we can, we can say, you know, well, you know, I, I, I don't have that. Right. Or, you know, well, now I'm in a place where I have all the things. Right. And yet, right. I mean, even for me coming from, you know, um, you know, a, a place of, Indian immigrants, right? You know, there was no, I mean, I'll use the example of emotional, um, emotional vocabulary. That was not something that was part of my family's culture, right? Nor was it part of my parents' parents, right? Culture, right? Their family of origin, right? They didn't sit at the dinner table asking each other, how do we feel? Right. They're, you Shut know, that down. Right. Right. You know, you know, my parents, parents, for they were farmers, they were, you know, the fishing industry. It was really, they were trying to survive. And when you're in that sort of place of survival, right. To actually put language to your emotional experience can feel like a luxury. It feels in some ways, even, um, uh, this sort of frivolous, right? Absolutely. And, and so then we hold all of this kind of this emotional experience within us and it shows up in yeah. these other ways, right? And even if you're also, you know, you grew up not in a marginalized space, we also then hold, right? Our own internalized um, yeah. worldviews, perspectives, narratives that have to be deconstructed, I think, in order for us to be agents of repair and change, right? Absolutely. I think um, so many people that I talk to who haven't had experience with therapy or haven't, you know, they don't have the luxury of studying trauma like we have, because that's right. also a luxury right? <laughs> to right. be able to dive deep into trauma and do this for a living. Um there is a conception like we talked about that to look at this is not productive. And I think what you're speaking to today is that it's essential that we look mm. to not just the individual traumas so that we can move forward, but the systemic traumas and the racial and um, any trauma that happens because you are part of a fringe in the, the said culture, you know, and we're in the U S right now. So racism is alive and well, and we yes. need some repair. Yes. Some yes. Repair. I, I absolutely essential, you know, in dialectical behavioral therapy, we talk about like, um, 
uh, emotional mind and and rational mind, right? And so often we hold like the honor and the, you know, um, the we we hold on a higher place the rational mind. Okay, this is where you know I I, I make this is my decision-making place. This is my place of reasoning and processing. And we um, can often dismiss or um, um, devalue the emotional minds, right? And um, in, in, in dialectical behavioral therapy, what I love is they talk about how the emotional mind and the rational mind integrated is what brings us the wise mind, is the wisdom. Like that, you know, that's without without one, right, we are lacking the wisdom, right? And the, our emotional experience, you know, I always say, right, emotions, they're neither good nor bad. They're just indicators. Our emotional experience, right, indicates for us something, right? And, you know, what does it look like for us to practice curiosity, right? curiosity around that, right? What does it look like? Whether you're, you're on the fringe, you've been in a marginalized place or you haven't, right? What does it look like for me to get curious about some of my perspectives around race, right? Racism, right? Yeah, I love that. I am so grateful that you came on today. I have so enjoyed our conversation. You've given us so many great Mm -hmm. nuggets to think Mm -hmm. about. My last question for you as we wrap up is when you yourself are feeling dysregulated, what's a tool you use for yourself to get back into regulation? It's a great question. Um, I think there are a couple of different ones that I have in my toolbox. Um, but I, I'll, I think maybe I'll start with, um, for me, when I notice this regulation, right. Um, I have to tap into the sensation, right. What, what's the sensation that's indicating to me that I'm in a place of dysregulation. And then I really tap into what's the associated pain story. Right. And what we generally find in, in, you know, in the emotion focused therapy kind of world is um, that we don't have like 15 different pain stories. We generally have one or two that have been, you know, that have history with us that we have kind of carried with us. Right. And so having done that work, I think for me, when I get dysregulated, um, I can tap into what's the pain story that's coming up for me right now. And for me, just to even share with you, my, one of my pain stories, I I don't have many, like, again, that one or two, but one of my big sort of predominant ones is I'm not enough. I'm not enough. And so I can make that association if I take just a little bit of space. Okay. What's coming up for me. That's telling me that I am not enough right now. And I practice really speaking back to it. I practice speaking back to it. And, you know, that's where I draw upon, you know, my own faith, right? You know, um, my faith in God, mm-hmm. who does God say I am? And that for me has been a foundational tool, right? To um, speak back to any place in me that tells me that I am not, not enough, right? Or I look into just what I know to be true, right? What I know to be true versus what my threat response is telling me, Yeah, you know? And so um, I think that's a, a practice for me. I also draw into connection 
with my people. And I find that as I get older, the, my, my people group can sometimes just get a little bit smaller and a little bit tighter. <laughs> um, and that's okay. That's okay. You know? Um, but I have like my one or two sort of go-to people, whether it's my husband or, you know, you know, two closest girlfriends that I can just draw and say, okay, this is what's happening for me, you know, and just kind of allow myself permission to drop into that vulnerability. Um, and then lastly, I think breath work is huge. I am a huge believer in breath work. Yes. Yes. And just giving myself permission to practice regulated breath helps me get that rational mind kind of back online. Right. Um, and helps me kind of zoom out and, um, you know, I think kind of show up in whatever the space is with a clearer mind and a clearer spirit. Yeah, that's beautiful. Julie, yeah. thank you so much for oh, joining you're us You're so today. welcome. Wow, you are it's wonderful. so good to meet you. It's really nice to meet you. Where can people find you? Oh, um, so you can find me on my website, which is www.juliehalltherapy.com. And all the information about me is there. I'm also on, you know, the socials, some of the socials. I'm, I'm on Instagram um, and you can just type in my name. I think it's Julie V Hall 01 is my Instagram handle. And then, um, yeah, on LinkedIn. And I'd be happy to, to talk more with anybody. And um, yes. So I so appreciate this time, Amy. Absolutely. And I hope you have a wonderful day. (laughs) Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you want to go deeper on this subject or any other subjects we've covered in the podcast, we are so excited to be launching our signature membership program at MendingTrauma.com. This is a trauma-informed mental health membership where we combine clinically effective practices, courses, and mentoring while putting you in the driver's seat. We teach you how to heal your trauma with the latest research combining mind, body, and spirit. We want to walk you through a healing journey while also empowering you. If you have felt this episode is helpful, we would absolutely love if you would go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your pods and give us a review. We'd also love it if you would share it with someone you think it might help. Tag us on social media at mendingtrauma.com or at Amy Hoyt PhD. We would love to reshare. And also, if there's anything we can do to help, we would love to hear from you. Email info at mendingtrauma.com. Give us your suggestions or topics you want to hear about. We would absolutely love to be of more service to you. We're so excited because we have so many good episodes coming up in season two, and we can't wait to go on this journey with you.